you can put lipstick on a pig and call it Monique and it's still a pig. <laughs> you know, race is like that. Right. You can talk around it all you want, but unless you're honest about it, you'll never be able to communicate appropriately, I think. So, in all of my, uh, whether it was in law school or the U.S. Attorney's Office or the state legislature, I've always been very straightforward about, I've never hid that light under a bushel. I figure if I'm in a room, the value, part of the value that I bring to that room is a perspective based on the fact that I am female with brown skin. Otherwise, I may as well be just another white guy, no offense, but you see what I'm saying? Uh, what's the point? If I'm, if I'm not going to articulate and give voice to the set of experiences that, 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 that are defining for me, then, well, I, then, I have, then I have no legitimacy. So def- calling it a racial attack, I had no problem doing that because that's exactly what it was. And a very warm welcome to episode 42 of American History 2. I am Mark McClay, and as always, I'm joined by Dr. Malcolm Craig. Hello, Malcolm. Yep, hello and good afternoon. And uh, this month, we're going to be looking at uh, black candidates before Obama. So a journey through uh, African-American involvement in American politics. And we're welcoming uh, to talk us through this and talk about his research, uh, the University of Lancaster's Richard Johnson, uh, who is in the Department of Politics, Philosophy and Religion. So uh, welcome, Richard. Uh, Thanks for agreeing to come on the podcast. And would you be able to just tell us a minute in a minute or so, you know, what's your research all about? What are you working on? Thanks both. I'm delighted to be here. Um, well, my, my work focuses on race and democracy in the United States. And so through the lens of racial politics, I look at all sorts of different aspects of American elections, political communications, campaign strategies, representation. Um, but my, my sort of main project has been about African-American candidates in predominantly white contexts. And I'm particularly interested in how African-American candidates speak about race in areas where most of their voters are white. And the main project I'm working on at the moment is a proposal for a book about the first wave of black statewide candidates. This looks at five particular candidates who um, either won or nearly won uh, uh, governor or a Senate election uh, between 1966 and 1992. Cool. Thank you very much for that. I've been looking forward to this podcast for quite a while, uh, given this is sort of in my sort of interest area as well. Essentially, I, I kind of, Richard, I, I want to start somewhat quantitatively at the end um, with the election of, of Barack Obama in 2008. And you say that in your research on these former black candidates that we're going to discuss, you're keen to move away from this idea that Obama was this truly exceptional black candidate. So that kind of leads to a small question to begin with. Has Obama's unique appeal been overstated? Well, while Obama was undoubtedly an extremely talented politician whose political trajectory has been obviously unsurpassed by any any other African-American politician, I do think commentators are wrong to see Obama, as his biographer described him, as uh, an entirely new and unique politician. Obama didn't just simply emerge out of nowhere, even though maybe for people who were not following black politics for a longer period of time, it seemed like it. But um, he really sits in um, uh, different traditions of African-American politics. I think there are two that he 
comes out of in particular. First is this more is the narrow uh, tradition that he comes from in Chicago, which is this kind of liberal, independent black politician. This is someone who sits apart from the Chicago machine and works alongside liberal whites, particularly those who are associated with the University of Chicago. And, you know, it's not just Obama who came from this milieu. Um, Carol Mosey Braun, who was the first black Democratic senator, came from this. Harold Washington was a Hyde Park resident. Jesse Jackson is based in Hyde Park. Um, and so this area has had a long tradition of supporting African-American candidates who were race conscious, um, but also had strong support from liberal whites. Um, the other tradition that Obama comes from is the tradition of the black statewide candidate. Um, and Obama himself was you know, influenced by a number of earlier black politicians. Harold Washington is the one who gets the most attention as mayor of Chicago. But there are also these candidates who ran outside of cities into statewide contests who is very keen to watch as a young man. Uh, one of them is Harvey Gantt, who we're going to discuss, who ran for the Senate in North Carolina when Obama was at law school. And we know from what Obama said, has said since and, and from uh, testimony at the time that he did follow Gantt's campaign very closely. And then the second is Carol Mosey Braun, who held his Senate seat from 1993 until 1999. And Obama's first job and uh, paid job in electoral politics was basically working for Braun's campaign. He turned down a clerkship in this prestigious D.C. district court to work for Carol Mosey Braun, um, which was a really surprising choice that people said at the time. But the, the point is that he he was influenced by these people. He didn't just kind of just crop up and sort of think, here I am, I'm going to be something totally different. He he had models, even if he didn't imitate them, you know, precisely. I was wondering if we might kind of, you know, go back to, you know, 100 years before the kind of the, the reenfranchisement of, of African-Americans and go back briefly to the period of Reconstruction, you know, those, you know, decade and a bit just after the end of the, the American Civil War in 1865, when there was a moment when African-Americans to a certain extent, managed to gain seats in, in Congress in, in a couple of both branches. Uh, you know, for example, I mean, the, one of the famous ones is you know, Hiram Rhodes Revels, who, I mean, for just over a year is the uh, senator in Confederate uh, President Jefferson Davis's old senatorial seat uh, in Mississippi. So what is what does that say about kind of America? This, you know, this brief moment where, you know, African-American candidates during Reconstruction gain access to these these seats of power uh, as you refer to them but that's 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 only brief that that goes very very quickly i mean you're absolutely right malcolm i mean this is such an an important part of american history which a lot of people don't really don't know too much about but i mean the figures from reconstruction are really staggering i mean after the civil war uh after the passage of the civil rights act of 1866 the proportion of african americans and men registered to vote went from 0.5% to 80.5% within a year. And, and that's partly because, you know, you had little, little less than, you know, you had military occupation in the South to enforce the constant, the, the new uh, rights that African-Americans had been granted. And African-American office holding was one of the fruits of this very serious attempt by the federal government to enforce African-American Rights. So, uh, I mean, as you mentioned, uh, you had um, Hiram Revels elected to the Senate. Blanche Bruce as well was elected to the Senate. 
At the time, of course, the Senate was indirectly elected. It was through the state. It was appointed by the state legislatures. You had 20 African-Americans who were elected directly to the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, the, 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 the state legislatures had very substantial black populations. South Carolina state legislature was majority black, the only time in American history where a state legislature is, has been majority black. Uh, you had for a month the child of a slave serving as um, the acting governor of Louisiana. And what's amazing about these officials, about 2,000 of them in all in this decade, is about half of them had been slaves only five, ten years before. And, and about one in five of them were, were, were illiterate. Um, but these numbers weren't maintained, and by the start of the 20th century, uh, they were pretty much all gone, um, driven out through uh, racist laws, Jim Crow constitutions, and uh, you know, in, in, in many cases, physical violence as well. Um, and 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 the way in which historians have treated this period of history has been very influential, I think, for American politics. A lot of white historians in the 20th century portrayed these, this period as African-American politicians were deeply corrupt or incompetent or buffoonish. And these became stereotypes which became sort of warnings for white voters into the 20th century, which is don't elect African-Americans because they made such a mess during reconstruction of governance that we couldn't possibly allow them to repeat it again. There's a historian called Merton Coulter who wrote in the 1940s that this was a period that was longest to be remembered, shuddered at, and execrated. So this notion that it was something not to be returned to again. And I think that the candidates I studied, I found that many of these sort of stereotyped racist tropes that have that history back in the Reconstruction um, historiography, um, I found they, they faced many of these as well, the notions that they would be prone to corruption, often at white people's expense, that they were less capable, less competent. So I think that this longer history is, is actually quite relevant to understanding these late 20th century cases. Moving on then to the five candidates um, that, that we're going to specifically discuss today. Um, and before we talk about them on an individual basis, as a group, and you've already hinted at one strain there, what what do these politicians have in common, do you think, if they have things in common at all? Well, biographically, they all grew up facing some degree of segregation and discrimination. So these candidates were born uh, between 1917 and uh, 1947. And so they either through their childhood or into their young adulthood um, you know, faced many of the legal obstacles that African Americans faced in the United States in the early um, and mid twentieth century. Um, but there's a there's a fair amount of diversity among them. Um, uh, I mean, three of them came firmly from you know the black middle class, which is different from the white middle class. So a more sort of lower middle class background. Um, Ed Brooks' father had been a bureaucrat in the VA administration, um, the veteran, the Veterans Administration. Uh, Douglas Wilder's father had been a traveling salesman. Braun's father had been a police officer. But two of them came from very humble backgrounds. Um, Thomas Bradley's parents had been sharecroppers in Texas. And Harvey Gant's father had an eighth grade education and worked in a shipyard as a manual laborer. And, and their, their biographies, you know, are not atypical of American politicians, but um, three of them were lawyers, uh, but uh, uh, Gant was interesting. He was an architect. 
and didn't have uh, didn't have that legal training at all. And Thomas Bradley was a police officer uh, before he entered into politics. Um, and they they had different levels of political experience as well. So Bradley and Gant had been mayors. Brooke and Wilder had been elected to lower level statewide office. Kamrosi Braun had been a state legislator and then was elected to a countywide office in Chicago. Chicago has in, in, numerous offices that you get directly elected to that have various patronage dispensing roles, and she she held one of those. Uh, and then sometimes people talk about their their complexions as well and how white voters might treat black candidates with different complexions differently. And certainly Brooke and Wilder were very light-skinned. Um, uh, Wilder was... Uh, called by racists when he first ran for um, office as a as a ginger skinned Negro. Um, at Braun, Gant, and Bradley, however, were very dark skinned. So there, there, there's not a you know they don't fit a single uh, mold of a of a politician. There's there's a fair amount of diversity between them. Oh, fascinating. I mean, so let, let's 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 jump straight in uh, and and get into the one by one at this point and, and see what more we can draw out. And let, let, let's begin with uh, with the first uh, to come along, and the, the one we're probably both most familiar with, which is Ed Brooke, um, the first African American senator um, since Reconstruction, um, coming from, and he's the senator for Massachusetts uh, between 1967 to 1979. Uh, Massachusetts, obviously, not a majority black state uh, whatsoever, and of. Of course, what might surprise some of our listeners in what was the civil rights era, which is often associated some, somewhat mistakenly with the Democrats, but somewhat justifiably, um, Brooke is a Republican. Uh, so could you just maybe give us a brief biography of, of Brooke the man? You know, what was his backstory before he's, he's elected to the U.S. Senate in 1966? Well, Brooke was born in, in 1919 in a, as I said, a sort of middle class back family. His father was a paralegal in the Veterans Administration, which was segregated by Woodrow Wilson in the decade that Brooke was born. He expressed that he had rarely dealt with white people uh, throughout his entire childhood into his time serving, uh, into his education. He went to a very prestigious all-black school in Washington, D.C. called Dunbar High School. Then he went to Howard University, which was almost entirely African-American. Then he served in the Second World War and, and at the time when the U.S. military was segregated, so all of his army colleagues were black. And he says so the first time that he actually interacted with white people in any serious way was when at, in 1945 he comes home from the war and uses the GI Bill to go to Boston University. And even then, though, he is living in the black community. He lives in Roxbury, which is a predominantly black part of uh, Massachusetts. Interestingly, though, uh, Brooke, while he was in um, serving in the, the Second World War, met an Italian woman uh, in, in overseas and, and married her and brought her back. And she lived with him in, in Roxbury. So she lived among the African-American community that that Brooke lived in. Brooke was a very, Brooke is interesting. I think, think people are surprised he was a liberal Republican. And I know, uh, you know, Mark, you'll know about that through, through your work. Uh, but for a lot of people, that seems uh, an oxymoron. But Brooke was very committed to seeing the Republican Party as the inheritors of that Reconstruction legacy. He uh, made comment about how the Republican Party is the party which gave his family freedom. Brooke's uh, grandfather had been born a slave. Brooke knew his grandfather. 
And uh, actually, one of the, when I interviewed him, one of the most amazing things about that interview was to be talking to someone who was telling me about his personal relationship with someone who'd been born into slavery. And it sort of shows you how you can stretch quite far back into history sometimes. Um, but but Brooke became more involved more involved in the Republican Party in Massachusetts, certainly on the left of the party. Uh, he ran for statewide office, lost the first time, won the second time as the Attorney General of Massachusetts, and um, he was pretty popular. He did a, he did a good job. He was scandal free. He positioned himself very firmly on the left of the Republican Party. He refused to endorse. Uh, Barry Goldwater in 1964, he refused to even appear on the same platform as him when Goldwater gave a rally in Fenway Park. Uh, so, so Brooke endeared himself very strongly to uh, the kind of liberal wing of the Massachusetts Republican Party, and also a lot of liberally minded Democrats, particularly those who lived in uh, outside of Boston uh, in, in the Berkshires and Western Massachusetts. Uh, could I kind of interrupt here? You know, we talked there briefly, you mentioned kind of Mark's research into uh, the great Republican relationship with the Great Society. So I'd like to actually pose a question to, to Mark first. Uh, so, oh God. yeah, well, here we go. Uh, this, is, this is your kind of area. Uh, what was Brooke's relationship with, on one hand, Lyndon Johnson's civil rights program, and on the other hand, Lyndon Johnson's great society programs such as the war on poverty for example yeah Briggs really interest in this regard i mean he's obviously he's quite clearly full bore behind the civil rights elements um but he's 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 kind of interesting on the the great society programs the war on poverty because brooks believes from what i can tell from a lot of his writing and speeches he is opposed to the democratic welfare programs in some ways that were introduced by franklin roosevelt he thinks some of the programs keep African-Americans on permanent welfare, meaning that they, they're not able to, you know, it's sort of the Republican bootstrap ideology that being on welfare stops you being able to pull yourself out of poverty. But at the same time, and that, that's, a very, that's a very sort of moderate Republican position at the time, a, a middle class position. But um, at the same time, Brooks sees the poverty, sees the violence that, that is happening in the nation's cities, and he's genuinely trying to figure out a way to to tackle poverty that does involve government. Um, so his, his speeches are often they're a little bit contradictory when you when you read them. Is you can see he's earnestly sort of grasping for a way for for a solution that doesn't involve welfare but does involve government. Um, I mean, I don't know if if Richard, if you have anything to add to that at all. No, I completely agree with that, Mark. I mean, I think that when it comes to social spending, he he does give almost contradictory comments, and 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 I think certainly on the on the Great Society civil rights side, though, he is throughout his entire political career, he was very firm as to where he stood on that. And when he ran for Senate in 1966, he was a very strong supporter of the failed Civil Rights Bill of 1966. And when he became a senator, he was the co-sponsor with Walter Mondale of the Fair Housing Act of 1968. Um, And there's a letter actually that um, Brooke uh, sent to uh, Martin Luther King three days before King's death saying that, uh, you know, we're going to be pushing again on this housing bill. I think we can get it through. And of course, the irony is that it was King's death that helped uh, push it over the line in the end. But Brooke was a, Brooke was a, 
I don't know if a friend is the right word, but he was certainly someone who had known Martin Luther King. They they were both uh, graduates of Boston University, and they were in the same fraternity at BU, so they'd known each other for a long time. Yeah, you said the Brooker. Uh, uh, is it right the Brooker actually provided basically the reference to, yes. to let Martin Luther King to get into it? Um, I mean, to, to to kind of take us back to him getting elected in the first place, and and on this issue of race. Um, you said comes from segregated society i think obama and the remarks he gives when he gives him the presidential medal of freedom says you know brooke basically lived near a town that he would need a note from a white person to pass through it's, it's that segregated i mean how does brooke deal with race when he's in massachusetts i seem to remember like a, a conference that we were at together where you you give a really convincing argument that in some ways brooke actually will use his race to his advantage um, or at least his campaign will yeah, when he when he ran for the Senate the first time in 1966, his slogan was "Proudly for Brooke, a creative Republican." And based on interviewing uh, people who were working in Brooke's campaign and looking at some of the um, documents from internal to the Brooke campaign, it's clear that one intended meaning of "Proudly for Brooke" was to appeal to a certain segment of the white. Massachusetts electorate, which wanted to show that Massachusetts was a forward-thinking state, a sort of a cut above the rest. Uh, there are interviews uh, that were done by Brooks pollsters. You can read the transcripts in his archives with it. White voters are saying things like, it would be a real feather in our cap to elect a Negro from Massachusetts. And his his Democratic opponents were very almost concerned about this. There's uh, his... Uh, his opponent, Endicott Peabody's, uh, has a letter in his archives uh, where he says, um, you know, this is this would be a sort of stunning asset for the Republican Party in Massachusetts to have Brooke as their nominee. So there's this, this notion that white voters in Massachusetts wanted to kind of show to the rest of America that Massachusetts voters were, uh, were they're a bit more educated than the rest of the United States. They're a bit more liberal. They're a bit more sort of with the times and electing someone like Brooke, who was in his own right, a very well-educated man, someone who'd got a law degree from BU, someone who had distinguished himself in the army and had done well as an attorney general. Uh, so he had all the qualifications. It was not to say that he wasn't, you know, he was elected only because he was black, but to take that, those set of qualifications and then add this notion of here's a kind of pioneering figure, I think was very attractive for a segment of the Massachusetts electorate. Okay, and just uh, sorry, just to, just to finish off on Brooke, um, I was wondering, you know, all from that that Massachusetts electorate wanting to be better than the rest of America in the 1960s, uh, does the fact that the protests against busing start to coalesce in the 1970s in Massachusetts um, around? I think it's just outside the Boston area. Um, does that have anything to do with Brooke's eventual defeat? 12 years later to the white uh, democratic candidate paul songas yeah i think i think that they are they are relevant i mean i think brooke was elected in the first place at quite a fortuitous time he was elected just before the big riots of the 1960 of 1967 summer and, and 1968 and so some of that anxiety of african americans in power hadn't really come to the fore. I mean, there had been Watts, but it, it still hadn't reached uh, a fever pitch in 1966. In 72, he was lucky at a very unqualified uh, opponent. And in 78, he faced uh, Paul Songus and, and lost. 
And this, this had come after the Boston busing riots. Brooke had very firmly put himself on the side of being in favor of busing and had written a letter to the Massachusetts uh, electorate and particularly the voters of Boston telling them that they really needed to get with the busing program and it didn't look very good that they, they weren't uh, supporting school integration. And he'd always said that if schools don't integrate, they should lose their federal funding. So he was pretty, he was pretty robust on that. And I think that couldn't have helped him uh, when he went for re-election. What's interesting, in, in as late as 78, um, very prominent African-American figures came to Massachusetts to campaign for Brooke. Jesse Jackson uh, and Coretta Scott King. So you have Jackson, who runs for president as a left-wing Democrat in 84, is in Massachusetts in 78, campaigning for Edward Brooke. So, you know, Brooke has still had that very strong tie with the African-American community, but by 78, he'd lost uh, enough white support to lose his to lose his Senate seat. So, I mean, mov- moving on then to the, the second of your case studies, and I know you're just in your initial um, kind of... The, the, the initial moments of, of of doing the research on this man, but he's behind, we're we're going to talk about Thomas Bradley, who has has perhaps been made far more famous um, by Obama's campaign than arguably his own unsuccessful run for the California governorship in 1982. So, before we 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 dive into Bradley, the man and the candidate, why did his run for the for the Golden State's executive mansion become the source of so much panic among supporters of Obama? 36 whole years later. Well, Bradley's name has sort of become uh, symbolic in studies of polling and anyone who does training in in a polling pro, uh, procedure in the United States will probably be exposed to this idea of the Bradley effect. And the Bradley effect was the idea that when Thomas Bradley ran for governor of California in 1982, the pre-election poll showed Bradley with a health, healthy lead over the over his Republican opponent, George uh, Duke Medjian. But in, on, on, on polling day itself, Bradley lost, and he lost fairly narrowly. He lost by 1.2 percentage points. But nonetheless, the idea was that white voters had some sort of, there was a norm of not wanting to be seen as racist. And so more white voters said that they were voting for Bradley than otherwise would have. And so there was a fear that when Obama was running, even though the polls in 2008 showed him with a healthy lead for most of the election campaign over John McCain, people thought that the Bradley effect would rear its angry head again and uh, Obama could could face the same fate as Tom Bradley and lose narrowly. Um, but, but pollsters, a lot of them have sort of questioned, have looked into this and sort of questioned uh, the Bradley effect. Uh, what, what, one, one problem is that when African-American candidates run for these offices against white opponents, the nature of the undecided electorate seems to look a bit different than in other campaigns. That's to say that you have virtually no black voters who are undecided or say they're undecided to pollsters. And so that means that the undecided group when you're doing a poll is much whiter than normal. And so the way that pollsters distribute undecided votes in pre-election polls, who, if they don't take that into account, might actually overstate the support uh, for, for the African-American candidate. But anyway, a lot of Obama's internal pollsters, and I interviewed someone who worked for uh, Obama's polling firm in the 08 election, said that they were very aware of this and the critiques against it. And so they in, internally, their polls were very pessimistic. And so they 
kind of, you know, they took account of the Bradley effect. Uh, and, and so they said it wasn't something that they were too concerned about having a nasty surprise on election day. So before we move on to kind of like, you know, the, the other candidates that you've looked at, I'd like to, we've mentioned them already uh, in this episode. Uh, the perennial Reverend Jesse Jackson, uh, who was a, you know, a, a figure in American presidential election politics uh, for a considerable period of time. And of course, he's a presidential candidate, not a statewide candidate, which is the focus of, of your work. But what influence does Jackson's kind of presence in the kind of the wider American political consciousness, what influence does it have, if any, uh, on the candidates that you're looking at and the way in which African-American political candidates are received in the, the 1980s and beyond? Well, there's a complicated relationship. So three of my candidates are post-Jackson's campaigns in 84 and and 88. And none of them had Jackson come and campaign for them in their elections, which is a contrast to Edward Brooke, as we discussed in, in Massachusetts in 78. And there was a there was a desire from all three of those candidates to distinguish themselves from Jackson, partly because Jackson lost and they wanted to win. And I think that, you know, aligning themselves too strongly with someone who, who lost was probably not seen as electorally um, positive. Um, Douglas Wilder uh, knew Jesse Jackson. He had been in the same uh, black fraternity as, uh, as Jesse Jackson. Uh, and so they went back a long time. And Jackson, uh, according to Wilder and people in Wilder's campaigns I've interviewed, uh, said that Jackson rang, rang up Wilder and said, uh, you know, what can I do to help you win the governor's race in Virginia? And, uh, and Wilder said, you can stay away. <laughs> Don't come to Virginia. And, and, and Wilder and, uh, and Jackson himself wrote at the time that he acknowledged that to expect an African, uh, someone who could be the first black governor to also be the state's leading civil rights leader was perhaps asking too much. And so he gave Wilder a great deal of um, leeway. Um, similarly, when Harvey Gantt ran for Senate in North Carolina in 1990, and Gantt was much more comfortable talking about race, but even Gantt didn't want um, Jackson to come. Uh, uh, Gantt's campaign manager, who I interviewed, said to me that he told Jesse Jackson that uh, if he had to, if the campaign manager had to lie in, in the middle of the highway at the state border to prevent Jesse Jackson from coming into North Carolina, he would. So there was this, you know, there was this desire to keep him away. When Carol Mosley Braun ran for the Senate in Illinois in 1982, Jesse Jackson lived in Illinois and lived in, you know, was in Chicago. And, and there Jackson took a more active role, but it was pretty uh, focused on turning out African-Americans in Chicago. What I think is, what is interesting though, is that all three of these campaigns um, recruited from Jesse Jackson's presidential campaigns. So a lot of their top level staff were people who had met each other through being part of the Jackson presidential campaigns or had worked for Jesse Jackson. Also, it was interesting that the archival work that I did showed that these campaigns also relied on Jesse Jackson's fundraiser lists. So ja Jackson handed over the lists of his fundraising, you know, the people to, to call up, the numbers of the people to call up. And even Douglas Wilder, who ran a very race-neutral campaign ostensibly, in the back room, his campaign staff were ringing up all the people who had donated to Jesse Jackson the year before in 1988, asking, can you give money for this first 
black gubernatorial candidates. So, so Jackson is Jackson is relevant for for these three, three campaigns, definitely. That's really interesting. And I mean, moving on to the man you just hinted at there, Douglas Wilder, who I, I have to admit, I I didn't know much about before before I was reading what you sent us and. And he's he's the first African American governor in the 20th century, so you know it's a, it's a really big deal. And having done a little bit of research, even just googling things, uh, sorry, just YouTubing things, it appears that that he was a really big his campaign was a really big deal. It attracted international attention, not just national attention, as anticipation grew that America was about to elect its first governor. Um, and I mean, can you tell us a bit about? Doug Wilder, Wilder himself. It fascinates me that he manages to win in Virginia, which is not the state that is today the one that Obama managed to win. It's it's not got as many liberal whites that are prepared to vote for black people, um, probably as it does now. And, and how does he fit into the, the the Democratic Party's ongoing sort of ideological struggle that's going on in the late nineteen eighties that we've discussed with that's discussed in previous episodes of the podcast. Well, just before we get on to that, on the point of the international attention, uh, I mean, it was absolutely true that the international press poured into Virginia. And I, I interviewed Wilder's um, uh, polling strategist, the person who did all his internal polls, and he said that uh, the campaign, his, Wilder's campaign totally panicked when this this happened because Wilder had wanted to try and keep race out of the election. Of course, you had all of these journalists coming from Germany and France and the UK uh, coming to the U.S. and saying, "Oh, look, this is the—you know—he's running to become the first black governor," and and Wilder had had studiously tried not to make that the explicit reason for his his candidacy. So the international attention—they they weren't very helpful, even if they were well-meaning. Um, on 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 the very important point you uh, raised Mark, about the Democratic Party—you know—Wilder himself went underwent quite a radical transformation ideologically throughout his political career. He was elected in the 1960s as the first black state senator in Virginia since Reconstruction. He represented Richmond, where um, most African-Americans in the state were living. And he had a quite left-wing liberal uh, program. But by the time he ran for uh, governor, he had really presented himself as a kind of died-in-the-wall kind of conservative figure um, and he tried to fit himself in what was what was called the the Virginia New Mainstream, which was these kind of um, centrist Democrats who were who had shed themselves of the trappings of so, the sort of segregationist Democrats, but didn't have the same kind of liberal politics as some Democrats, you know, the you know the Hubert Humphreys in, in Minnesota, northeast northeastern Democrats, and so Wilder himself became part of this this new mainstream of the Democratic Party. But it was for a lot of people who'd known Wilder and followed him through his political career, this was pretty surprising. He had sort of completely changed his political clothes in order to run for governor. And so how did the uh, the Wilder campaign choose to handle handle the race issue? I mean, how did they approach that as, as, a, as a particular issue within the campaign? They studiously avoided it at all costs. So Wilder, again, this is part of Wilder's transformation. Wilder had been a very race-conscious figure in Virginia politics in the 60s and 70s. His first act as, uh, as a uh, state senator was to try and ban the uh, state song, Carry Me All Back to Old Virginia, which had been adopted in the 1940s by segregationist Democrats and was an ode to slavery. It was the voice of a slave 
wishing that they could be brought back to the time of uh, the good old times under um, dear old Massa and uh, classy. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can, you can listen to the song. I mean, it's, 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 it's not subtle. And, uh, and Wilder tried to, to ban the song and it became a huge battle, which he lost. And it remained the state song of Virginia into the 1990s. It's still the state song emeritus is the title it has today. Um, so Wilder was very unafraid to engage with that. He was also very big on a push to set up a Martin Luther King holiday, state holiday before the federal holiday came in in Virginia. The compromise that he had to reach was that he had to have a, he, Martin Luther King had to share the day with um, uh, Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee. And so it was called Lee Jackson King Day. African-Americans in Virginia took their own spin on that and called it Jesse Jackson, Spike Lee and Martin Luther King Day. That is brilliant. That is an amazing response to that. Yeah, to, to try and make it their own. But so that, you know, Wilder was doing that well into the 1980s, but then he, in 1985, he runs for uh, Lieutenant Governor and it's totally ceremonial in, 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 in Virginia. And uh, he, but he used that as a way, that campaign as a way of kind of patching up and building bridges with old, more racist, segregationist, democratic kind of progeny in Virginia. He, when he campaigned for Lieutenant Governor, he slept in a house that had the Confederate flag flying outside of it. He sort of paid homage to the leader of the remnant of the old Harry Bird machine in Virginia, A.L. Philpot, who used to apparently used the N-word quite liberally, in, even in front of Wilder. And uh, their their first joint event together, Phil Potts said, uh, this would be a great experiment for Virginia. Uh, so Wilder said it was kind of a bit grating, but he took the endorsement because he needed the votes. But uh, by the time he ran for governor, he didn't even need to do that because he didn't need to make that sort of appeal in that explicit way to segregationists. He had made his peace. And so he ran a campaign where he refused to talk about race, even when prompted, even when reporters asked him about race, he would he would studiously pivot off of the topic. And, uh, you know, he writes in his memoirs, and, and I interviewed him a couple of years ago, and, you know, he, he reflects on that. He says, you know, that was not an accomplishment for Virginia. I mean, people have often said this was a sign that Virginia had moved beyond race and that a candidate could could get elected. Um, without race being in the forefront. But Wilder says race was at the forefront of voters' minds, and that's why I couldn't talk about it. So I was under this kind of racist structure where, you know, there were lots of things where I felt I was being treated unfairly on the, on, on account of my race, or I thought that um, black students, there was a controversy involving black students at the time, were being described in racist ways, and I wanted to defend them, but I felt I couldn't because I, the you know white voters would have reacted negatively, and so I had to deracialize my campaign, and 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 so while this campaign is often seen as a model actually of how black candidates should try and remove race from their campaigns when they run in majority white environments. That's that's really interesting. I'd love to I'd love to know more about his actual his governorship and everything, but we have to actually we have to fire through because uh, we're running a wee bit short of time. And for the next person, we're going just one state south. Um, and well, you said Wilder tried to remove race from his campaigns. Well, Harvey Gantt really didn't have a choice. Um, I imagine. I mean, you might tell me otherwise, but um, uh, the pleasure or the displeasure 
of 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 running against the racial firebrand conservative Jesse Helms um, in North Carolina in both 1990 and 96. And it's a very, two very famous battles, as you've already mentioned, you know, like Barack Obama's uh, very much touched on his experience of, of, of following the, there's a famous picture of him in a t- of a Gantt t-shirt. So before we get into his battles so with Helms, I'm interested in who Harvey Gantt was. I know he was mayor of Charlotte at one point, but what kind of coalition was he trying to form in what was, well, perhaps a progressive racial state in some ways, but still a southern state? Yeah, Harvey Gantt was someone who had had a sort of, you know, he had a pretty ordinary working class background was successful uh, at school in a segregated school in South Carolina. And that was a, was a pioneer, really. He desegregated Clemson University in South Carolina after a lengthy court battle and had always been a kind of civil rights pioneer. But alongside this professional job as, as an architect and, and, uh, and had this career as mayor of, of Charlotte, when, when, when Gantt ran for Senate in North Carolina, even though it was one state south of Virginia and only one year after Douglas Wilder, he understood that he could not run the same campaign as Douglas Wilder because he was running against Jesse Helms, who was an unashamed sort of white, old-fashioned white supremacist in some sense. You know, uh, in, in this campaign in 1990, Helms was saying what a shame it was that the schools in Raleigh had been forced to integrate because it was much better for both blacks and whites that they had segregated schools because then blacks were more likely to take pride in their own education if they only went to school with blacks. And he's saying this in 1990 as he's running for Senate. And so Gantt's campaign strategy was, uh, Gantt described Jesse Helms as his perfect opponent because it enabled uh enabled uh, Gantt to be as honest about race as as Helms was from uh, Helms's perspective. And so uh, Gantt said that, you know, I could be I could be liberal. Uh, I could be straightforward on my liberal positions. I could be straightforward on my belief that we need to move racial progress forward. And Jesse's going to try and rile up his base, but I'm going to try and rile up my base. And, and, and North Carolina, as I think you're alluding to, Mark, had always had a sort of progressive tradition or always seen itself as having a progressive tradition, you know, it had a very strong university sector. And so Gantt's base was really trying to turn out very high level of African-Americans, African-American registration, that election went through the roof and to also turn out liberal whites in the state. And he nearly did it. He got 47% of the vote. And so, um, you know, if things had been a little bit differently, who knows, he could have possibly won that election. Okay, and just before we, we discuss uh, the 1990 and 96 elections, I'm just going to run the two clips um, from the 1990 uh, Senate election now. You needed that job, and you were the best qualified. But they had to give it to a minority because of a racial quota. Is that really fair? Harvey Gantt says it is. Gantt supports Ted Kennedy's racial quota law that makes the color of your skin more important than your qualifications. You'll vote on this issue next Tuesday. For racial quotas, Harvey Gantt. Against racial quotas, Jesse Helms. Jesse Helms is running another smear campaign, charging me with using my race for financial advantage, charging me with wanting to require gay teachers in schools. Those ads are lies, and Jesse Helms knows it. 
For 18 years, he's been playing on people's fears and killing the state's hopes in the process. Most smear campaigns haven't educated one child or cleaned up one toxic wayside. They've helped only one person, Jesse Helms. This time, don't be taken in by the smears. There's too much at stake for North Carolina. So, I mean, Richard, can you give us a rundown on how both of the, these Senate elections unfolded uh, with the uh, delightful uh, Jesse Helms? Well, the, the word that people used from the campaigns, I interviewed people who worked for Gantt in 1990 and 1996, both unprompted, I had people describing it as a crusade. And in fact, that going back and looking at the newspapers, that's how Harvey Gantt described it himself. It had a real crusade feel about it. And there were kind of... In 1990, there were two big flashpoints. One was this clip that people have heard about uh, Gantt supporting racial quotas, according to Helms, which would take away jobs from white voters. And the imagery of that advert is a a pair of white hands crumpling up a job rejection letter and saying that you you, you deserve that job, but they had to give it to a minority because of a racial quota, which Harvey Gantt supports. The other attack that Helms used against Gantt over and over again was this notion that Gantt had become a millionaire through his race, that Gantt had taken advantage of affirmative action programs uh, to sort of almost corruptly uh, become uh, rich. There's a very tenuous basis to this. Uh, The closest is that Gantt um, had taken part in some minority procurement programs when he was mayor. But, uh, you know, this... this really, this election really reached a fever pitch and turnout was high on both sides. It was unusually high for a midterm election. And in the end, Jesse Helms just edged it. In 96, there was a kind of a replay of all of this. But by this time, Gantt had been out of office for uh, nearly a decade. He hadn't been mayor. He'd lost his seat as mayor of Charlotte. And so I think he had a little less credibility by this point. And so he the, the result was pretty much the same. Gantt did a little bit worse, um, but that was Helms's last uh, Senate uh, campaign, and then he retired after that. All right, and I mean, I, th- I think you said to us as well, you know, that the nineteen ninety race was so fractious that the governor even talked about it. You know, almost broke the whole state apart. So, you know, if people want to go back and look into it themselves, I'd very much recommend doing so. So, on to our final. Uh, black candidate that, that you're going to be discussing and, and hopefully what will be your upcoming book. And that is uh, Carol Mosley Braun, uh, who becomes U.S. Senator from Illinois after what was a really surprising victory, particularly in the Democratic primary in 1992 when she ran against an incumbent. And obviously Braun's coming from the same state that, that Obama's going to run in, so she's a key pioneer that way. But She's also coming out of Chicago, and uh, we've touched on Harold Washington before, who was who was the mayor there, um, having formed his own progressive coalition uh, a decade or two earlier. I mean, how important was this to Braun herself, and and what lessons did she learn? Like, what was what was the racial politics of her race in nineteen ninety two? Well, Braun had a had a pretty close relationship with Harold Washington as a state legislator. She was his floor leader in the state senate that's to say that she would propose legislation that the mayor asked her to on behalf of the city of chicago and uh there was it was a kind had tense moments as well and braun was pretty ambitious and uh, quite a few people thought that braun wanted to be mayor herself and so washington had to block her a couple of times she tried to run for lieutenant governor in the mid 80s and and uh 
uh, Washington kind of pulled the rug from underneath her on that. Um, but, you know, by and large, she was a very strong supporter of, of, of the mayor. And his election in 1983, when he won the Democratic primary, became important in her campaign in 1992, because Washington was elected in a three-way primary. He ran against two white opponents, one who had been uh, had been the incumbent and the other who was a kind of um, uh, insurgent uh, figure who, uh, well, Richard Daly, who became mayor later on. And Carol Mersey-Braun, when she ran for Senate, also faced two white opponents. She, incha- she had also challenged the incumbent, um, Senator Alan Dixon, and she also there was this insurgent uh, white candidate, this millionaire um, Al Holfield, whose campaign manager uh, was a guy called David Axelrod, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and 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 so actually the white these two white candidates split the vote sufficiently that Braun came through the middle in a similar way that uh, that Washington did within within Chicago. So th- so that dynamic you know played through between both both can- campaigns. And was. Brown's challenge was it even more symbolic because of her status not only as African American but also as a as an African American woman, and you know did her her campaign embrace kind of the the gender element of her of her candidacy? It certainly did. I, I mean, 1992 was sometimes called the year of the woman uh, because there were a lot of Af- female candidates who were standing for for high-level positions, and Braun was seen as one of them. Braun's own candidacy had been provoked by Senator Dixon, who was a Democrat's vote in favor of um, Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court. And many liberals, white and black, in Illinois were angry with him for doing this because they believed that the all-white, all-male Senate Judiciary Committee had not taken seriously the testimony of Anita Hill, who was an African-American woman who alleged to have been sexually harassed by Clarence Thomas. And Braun, in fact, throughout her campaign, would would almost compare herself to Anita Hill. So when her Republican opponent, Richard Williamson, referred to Braun as a reckless woman, uh, Carol Mosey Braun said, reckless, isn't that what they called Anita Hill? Um, this gender element, though, also came to hurt Braun. Uh, the month before the election, it was revealed that her mother had been possibly wrongly, it's slightly, slightly complicated, but her mother was a was a, a diabetic amputee who was on Medicaid, which is a means-tested um, health insurance. And there was some question as to whether or not she was uh, legitimately poor enough to receive Medicaid. And uh, her uh, Braun's Republican opponent accused Braun of being a welfare cheat. And uh, Braun called a press conference in which he accused, uh, replied and said that my opponent is trying to peddle racism in this campaign. They're trying to tell the voters of Illinois that they've got a bomb-throwing welfare mother running for the Senate. And so Braun's reaction to this accusation, which was racially coded, it didn't, you know, Williamson didn't mention race explicitly, Braun's reaction was to call out race explicitly. And both Braun and her campaign team believe that that was important, actually, because it showed Illinois voters that, you know, uh, Braun was being treated unfairly, that she was subject to certain gendered and racial stereotypes that another opponent wouldn't have to, to deal with. And they think that that actually stopped a number of her supporters from defecting to Williamson. Yeah, and I mean the 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 clip that this episode begins with from your your interview 
with Carol Mosley Braun, she does not shy away from calling out racism where she sees racism. No, she uh, and uh, I, I think there was there was quite a lot came up in her time as a senator as well, didn't she? She ended up getting in a spat with the conservative commentator George Will, where she, in no uncertain terms, called him out for what she said was racism. She, she, you know, she defies this notion that every black candidate in a majority white jurisdiction has to follow the Douglas Wilder model. Braun was a race conscious candidate and politician. She made a, you know, a splash in the Senate as well when she um, persuaded the Senate not to allow the, uh, the the patent for the Confederate flag to be given to the daughters of the Confederate Revolution, uh, the the um, daughters of the Confederacy. Um, and and so she, throughout her tenure, was willing to talk about race. She was subjected to uh, what turned out to be quite trumped up accusations that she'd been using ca- campaign finances um, irregularly. You know, again, she probably did things a bit like her mother that perhaps stretch the bounds of propriety, but the reaction to it does seem over the top. And I think that she did suffer again from people's assumptions that black politicians, they must be cheating the system. They must be corrupt. They must be trying to, you know, duck and dive and and, and get things unfairly. And I think that that helps to explain why she was unable to hold her seat in 1998, although it was it was closer than a lot of people thought, she nearly did hold on to it in 98. Yeah, and apparently she was thinking about doing it and running in 2004 when when Obama would eventually win that seat. Um, but but she chose to run for president briefly instead, which gave Obama the chance to jump in. That's according to if you believe David Axelrod, anyway. But, yeah, that's but, no, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the final thing, and, and I, I wondered listening to you there on Braun whether she's an exception or whether you see her as representative or not and and listening to you talk about all of these figures and how they thought about race how they engage with it in their campaign how their campaign managers who i imagine a lot of them are probably going to be white as well um i i was wondering how much you think these candidates are able to through their candidacies able to alter race relations in their states or throughout the united states or are they or were they completely restricted by the racial milieu in which they are running? You know, have, do they have to be so careful that I'm saying what they want to say about race all the time? Well, I think, you know, this is it's a really important point. And I think one of the issues that sometimes racial scholarship has is that by taking structure seriously, which it absolutely should, it does sometimes minimise the degree to which individual candidates can exercise agency. And so one of the things I try to do in my research is to highlight these very deep and powerful structural dynamics these candidates operate within, but to also identify that these candidates do make choices and that structure doesn't totally overpower them. You know, Braun was advised by some of her campaign team not to call Richard Williamson a racist or to say he was peddling racism, but she believed that she had almost a kind of moral imperative to to do so um you know she interestingly had an african-american campaign manager harvey gant also had an african-american campaign manager and i think that having an having black campaign managers possibly gave them a little more space than uh, some other african-american candidates have to to engage in a discussion 
uh, about race. Um, they weren't being held back so much by their, their campaign teams. I think these candidates can serve, can offer a, an educative role to electorates. And I think that, you know, moving forward, you know, my next, after I get through this project, my next project would be to look at more recent candidates. And I, I already have, have done so from my, um, uh, PhD thesis, and and I think that it's it's important for these candidates to to not write off voters. I mean, I think it's very interesting that Braun went to downstate Illinois and spent a lot of time campaigning among uh, the type of people who today voted for Donald Trump. But when she ran, she she swept downstate Illinois two to one. Um, you know, she won counties that Donald Trump won with seventy percent of the vote. And that was partly because she believed that, you know, she could have a discussion with these people about race, that she could talk about her humble origins and make common cause with them. Uh, and, you know, she felt that people had an instinct for fairness that she could try and appeal to, um, you know, ev even if it was, uh, you know, a limited discussion. So she, you know, she said that she would talk to people about how, you know, she used to say, I used to go down to downstate Illinois and say, um, you know, I come from an agricultural background myself. Well, it's true, but that's because her grandparents were, you know, sharecroppers. I mean, it's a bit different, but, you know, she tried to use a common language. And I think that, you know, there's no reason why black candidates sh shouldn't do that and also feel that they, you know, can't keep to a, a committed program that also speaks to the specific needs of African-American voters. It's a very difficult tightrope, but I think Braun and, and, and Gant and, and Brooke show that it, it, it can be done to a, to a certain extent. And I think that is an entirely appropriate point uh, to end this, uh, to use the word which is always used on American History too, fascinating discussion uh, of uh, African-American candidates before uh, Barack Obama, certainly uh, as a total non-specialist in domestic policy and domestic issues. I certainly learned a lot from that. So thank you very much, Richard, for taking the time to come on. Thank you for having me. It was real fun. Yeah. And as an expert in domestic policy, I still learned a lot. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, uh, yeah, so th thanks again, Richard. And we are going to be back next month where we'll be talking barbecues in the Texas Hill Country, amongst other things, as we delve into diplomacy um, and the different tools that presidents have used uh, to, to, cut, to, to charm those from further countries. Um, but thanks again, Malcolm. Thanks again, Richard. Cheerio. Bye. Bye. Bye.